When you're small, you know nothing. When I was small, I woke up in Germany. I heard the bells and rubbed my eyes and saw the wind pushing the curtains like a big belly. Then I got up and looked out the window and saw Ireland. And after breakfast, we all went out the door to Ireland and walked down to Mass. And after Mass, we walked down to the big green park in front of the sea because I wanted to show my mother and father how I could stand on the ball for a count of three. I chased after it, but I could see nothing with the sun in my eyes, and I fell over a man lying on the grass with his mouth open. He sat up suddenly and said, What the Jesus? He told me to look where I was going in future. So I got up quickly and ran back to my mother and father. I told them the man said Jesus, but they were both turned away, laughing at the sea. My father was laughing and blinking through his glasses, and my mother had her hand over her mouth, laughing and laughing at the sea, until the tears came into her eyes, and I thought, maybe she's not laughing at all, but crying. How do you know what that means, when her shoulders are shaking, and her eyes are red, and she can't talk? You know the sky is blue, and the sea is blue, and they meet somewhere, far away at the horizon. You can see the white sailing boats stuck on the water and the people walking along with ice cream cones. You can hear a dog barking at the waves. You can see him standing in the water, barking and trying to bite the foam. You can see how long it takes for the sound of the barking to come across, as if it's coming from somewhere else and doesn't belong to the dog at all anymore, as if he's barking and barking so much that he's hoarse and lost his voice. When you're small, you know nothing. You don't know where you are, or who you are, or what questions to ask. Yeah, I remember very well at the age of nine, roughly, um, because the English language was prohibited all the time, I made this conscious decision that I wanted to speak it even more than any other language. It was this challenge, and I kind of spoke to myself inside my head, I spoke to the walls, I spoke to objects in the room, as if they were kind of my friends, friends that I couldn't have in the English language. I would have them then as props in the house. And there was something terrifying about that as well, because my father could walk into the room any moment and find me, because I was doing this out loud very often. Mae fi dair cerfilio'r gwrw ehedig o gwrw se dîn gyma, ac mae'r dîr a fi se dîn tynnol o hyf yn cyrhyn i'r men sy'n siwmr, fi sy'n siwmr ag prohibited language, like the kind of, almost sort of, as, I, as if I went into exile uh, as a child. You know, I would hear people speaking and I would then rehearse all their, their what they've said and everything like that and, you know, make up conversations for myself. I found this extremely thrilling as well. I suppose, so that was maybe the way I, I began to, to write in some ways. Hugo Hamilton's first three novels were set in Germany. And the two novels that came after that were sort of genre novels, police novels. But there was a feeling, certainly I had a feeling, that for a lot of people brought up in the suburbs, especially in the Dublin suburbs, 
that there mightn't be enough drama in those sweep of houses, that it might have just been an ordinary, happy childhood and that you had an extraordinary literary gift, as Hugo Hamilton clearly did. It was apparent from his first novel, Surrogate City. And that the German aspect of you, the going to Germany and studying that society, was your great drama of finding yourself there, which you wrote about in The Last Shot in Surrogate City and in The Love Test. And that... The ba- your own background, your own business of going to school every day, of coming home every day, of parents, that simply wasn't dramatic. The very, very interesting thing about Hugo is that the language hasn't come naturally to him. He fought for the language. He loves that language. And he treats it with such care and delicacy. You can't be a writer like Hugo unless you're born to be a writer like Hugo. Nobody can go and learn how to do this. And he has not just become his potential, but he's done it with a great fight because he has fought for the language that he uses. He's very quiet, he's very shy, he's very funny, um, he's very watchful, but, he, but, he, but he's not somebody who goes around the place talking about himself. He's just not, not like that. So that for me, the, the idea that he was writing a memoir... Um, didn't strike me as promising. There had been a lot of memoirs written at that time which had been very successful. Uh, Nula Fuerlons, Frank McCourt, Dermot Healy, say. And so there wasn't enough simply in having a German mother, you know, and being brought up in Dublin to give you enough for a memoir. And he rang me from Berlin and said, look, I've finished this book. I wonder if you'd look at it. And he sent it. And I realised that I was completely wrong about everything. When you're small, you know nothing. You don't know where you are or who you are, or what questions to ask. My father writes down his name in Irish, and my mother writes down her name in German, and there's a blank space left over for all the people outside who speak English. We're special because we speak Irish and German, but you don't want to be special. Out there in Ireland, you want to be the same as everyone else. Not an Irish speaker, not a German, or a Kraut, or a Nazi. We're lucky to be alive, she says. We're living in the luckiest place in the world, with no war and nothing to be afraid of, with the sea close by and the smell of salt in the air. There are lots of blue benches where you can sit looking out at the waves and lots of places to go swimming, lots of rocks to climb on and pools to go fishing for crabs, shops that sell fishing lines and hooks and buckets and plastic sunglasses. We're living in a free country, she says, where the wind is always blowing and you can breathe in deeply, right down to the bottom of your lungs. It's like being on holidays all your life, because you hear seagulls in the morning, and you see sailing boats outside houses, and people even have palm trees growing in their front gardens. Dublin, where the palm trees grow, she says, because it looks like a paradise, and the sea is never far away, like a glass of blue-green water at the bottom of every street. I know there's drama in everything that you can't say there's no drama in the summers. But in his particular life, in his particular childhood, there was not obviously an extraordinary drama surrounding language, surrounding control, surrounding authority, surrounding all forms, really, of sort of cultural pressures on this extraordinarily sensitive consciousness. But also, he had been waiting to find a style that would get this right, that would be on the surface non-judgmental. In other words, you watch everything from the child's perspective. The child doesn't judge, the child believes, the child accepts. The way the child describes accepting and believing gives you, the reader, a feeling, oh my God, oh my God. It's not only this is being done to him, 
but that he's buying it, he's believing in it, that, that it's his collaboration in the authority as a child that is making it much worse, almost. The attempt to get that idea of, of wanting you to know the pain on one hand and the acceptance on the other, done as a novelist works, where you're trying to almost reproduce the current of consciousness, with the current of consciousness of somebody who's eight, who's nine, who's ten, who's very watchful, but also the current of consciousness of, of course, someone who's writing all this now, years later. My father says we have nothing to worry about because we are the new Irish, partly from Ireland and partly from somewhere else, half Irish and half German. We are the speckled people, he says, the brack people, which is a word that comes from the Irish language. My father was a school teacher once before he became an engineer and brack is a word, he explains, that the Irish people brought with them when they were crossing over into the English language. It means speckled, dappled, flecked, spotted, coloured. A trout is brack and so is a speckled horse. Barn brack is a loaf of bread with raisins in it and was borrowed from the Irish words barin brack. So we are the speckled Irish, the brack Irish, brack homemade Irish bread with German raisins. But I know it also means we're marked. It means we're aliens and we'll never be Irish enough. We have speckled faces. So it's best to stay inside where they can't get us. Inside, we can be ourselves. Because they're no longer here, I felt a duty as a writer to tell everything from their point of view as well, uh, to, to kind of almost step into my father's shoes and to kind of give an understanding of, of how he felt, you know, the historical background from which he came. My mother had ways of telling us not to ask questions. She'd have phrases such as, you know, that film is over now and it's time to go to bed or whatever. I talk about her experiences in Germany under the Nazi regime with this device that she is in a movie, in a bad film, a black and white film where there were lots of guns and bombs and trains on fire, as I, as I put it. That's something that a kind of construct that she would have put on it as a, as a storyteller herself. It's also a device that allows me to kind of return to that film as a child and to reveal what happened to her around that time, how she was, in effect, brutalised as well by certain incidents. I thought it was very important to, in order to understand any weakness that she had and, and, and all the strengths that she had in, in getting around, you know, the bad moments in, in, in our family. She lets us play with some of her things. My older brother Franz, my younger sister Maria and me examine everything on her dressing table. Lipstick, scissors, nail clippers, rosary beads. In the drawers on each side of the dressing table we find letters, scarves and stockings, passports and photographs, rail tickets, sleeper accommodation on night trains. And then we came across the medals. I knew immediately that they were German medals because everything that belongs to my mother is German. She tells us lots of stories about Kempen, where she grew up. So I knew that my grandfather, Franz Kaiser, was in the First World War and that my mother was in the Second World War. I knew that my grandmother, Berta, was an opera singer and that my grandfather, Franz, once went to listen to her sing at the State Opera House in Krefeld. And because everyone else was sending her flowers, he decided to send her a bouquet of bananas instead. And that's how they fell in love and got married. Sometimes my mother puts on the radio 
to see if she can hear some of the songs that her own mother sang. At first there was nothing much in my father's wardrobe, only cufflinks, ties and socks. But then we found a big black and white picture of a sailor with square white lapels over his tunic and a rope lanyard hanging down over his chest. He had soft eyes and I liked the look of him. I wanted to be a sailor, even though I had no idea what this sailor was doing in my father's wardrobe. I know that my father comes from Cork and works as an engineer in Dublin and writes his name in Irish. When he was small, Ireland was still under the British. His father's family were all fishermen. His father fell on deck one day and lost his memory and died not long after that in a hospital in Cork City. But we never talk about that. And at last we came across more medals. Heavy bronze medals this time, one for each of us. We didn't know where these new bronze medals came from, except that they must have belonged to the sailor hiding at the back of the wardrobe. I had no idea that I had an Irish grandfather who couldn't even speak Irish. His name was John Hamilton and he belonged to the Navy, the British Navy, the Royal Navy. He joined up as a boy of 15 and served on all kinds of ships, Defiance, Magnificent, Katoomba, Repulse. He fell on a British naval vessel called the HMS Vivid when he was only 28 years of age. He died because he was homesick and lost his memory. I didn't know that my Irish grandfather John Hamilton and my German grandfather Franz Kaiser must have stood facing each other in the Great War, or that my mother and father were both orphaned by that same war, or that I was wearing the medals of two different empires side by side. There were so many boxes at the bottom of the wardrobe that we could sit on them and pretend we were on a bus. We called it the number eight bus and France was the driver holding a hat for a steering wheel. I was the conductor bedecked in medals and Maria was the only passenger apart from my father's Sunday suit hanging on the rail and the quiet sailor in the back seat looking away out the window. Hold the bar please, I called and Maria got on. Then I closed the door and the wardrobe drove off in complete darkness. Maria cried and said she wanted to get off but it was already too late for that because the bus was going so fast that it started leaning over. Before we knew it, the whole wardrobe was lying on its side. The only thing stopping it from crashing all the way down to the floor was my mother and father's bed. We knew there would be trouble. We were silent for a while, waiting to see what would happen next. Sometime later, I heard my mother's voice outside saying that she could not believe her eyes, but everything was going to be all right in the end, she said because even if we had to stay in the dark for a while longer, she would tell us a story until help came, until my father came home and the wardrobe suddenly stood up and the door opened. It was daytime again. I rubbed my eyes and saw my father blinking through his glasses and saying everything with a frown on his forehead, and I felt the sting of his hand. But it was nothing, because soon we were all safe again and my mother was talking about the cake for after dinner. The medals were taken off, and put away. The picture of the sailor with the soft eyes disappeared and we never saw him again after that. Nobody mentioned him. We didn't know how to remember him and like him we lost our memory. This was the book he had been waiting to write. But this book, waiting until you're almost 50 to describe something so immensely interesting, so immensely traumatic, that deals with the very fundamentals 
of why the Irish state was set up. Now, what happened was that the second generation, in other words, the generation after the revolution, became domestic. We get it in, say, Roddy Doyle's memoir of his parents, that they were terribly interested in the houses they bought, their children's education, the buying of a new sofa, the changing of the windows. For the man as much as the woman would be an extraordinary sort of rite of passage. As for the previous generation, the the getting of your first rifle and and the, you know, the uh, 1916 into the Civil War. But Hugo's father continues a revolutionary spirit into the domestic sphere. There's no other version of that. All the revolutionaries seemed, once the revolution was over, to settle into domesticity so beautifully, to settle into Dunleary or whatever suburb they were in, and to have children who adored them and to forget the revolution. But this permanent revolutionary for a father is a national story as much as a personal one, which I think is, it's focused on something very important in Ireland, in, into how a revolution was brought into the public sphere only. But in the domestic sphere, everyone talks about those revolutionaries as being just quiet men who sat in the corner. You know, their wives did all the talking. When you think about people like, you imagine, Frank Aiken or, or Sean McEntee, you know, who, once the revolution was over, they settled very into nice houses and they, you know, had easy domestic lives. And this is the opposite. It reminded me of, you know, my own father, say, I spoke Irish and his brother spoke Irish, and they would have very much believed in the revival. They were very big in Fianna Fáil. And it was amazing, almost, that they never brought that into the, in, into the domestic sphere. That at home, they were just easy, happy, that they never bossed anyone round. And there was something extraordinarily monstrous about bringing a revolution into, in, into the domestic sphere. My father bought the house after he became an engineering graduate he eventually came down and worked and got a job with the ESB and was able to buy himself a house. It was quite a large house with tall ceilings, a big hallway with with a large door and a fan light over, overhead and stairs going all the way up further than you could count, as I remember it as a child. <laughs> We when we when we were very small, there were still there were still tenants living in the house, the O'Neills, and they lived at the top of the house. And my father didn't like them; they spoke English. So there were people under his roof who spoke English. They came down the stairs in their coats with their hats on. So effectively, the hall was a street to them. So they treated the front, the hallway as a, as, as a street. Uh, eventually. They left, I think they were bought out by my father, and so he had the whole house to himself, um, which he then ran like his own little republic. The, f- the front room was, most of the time, was, was his domain, where he read his books, or where they would have sat down in the evening and spoken to each other. and uh, Or where they, when my uncle Ted, the Jesuit, came 
he would have been taken in there and we would have been sent into the back to play or whatever, which in most houses is the adjoining dining room. In our case, that was given over to us. As in, in German, it was called the Skinderzimmer, the children's room. All our toys were in there. And I suppose this is a mark of his creativity in a way that my father made all of the toys for us. German books mostly would have been also in, the, in that room. Uh, there were also all the kind of fairy tales and that uh, which my mother always told. My, my father wasn't, wasn't a storyteller like that. He didn't, uh, he had his own way of telling stories and anecdotes, but he didn't tell us the bedtime stories as such. So they, they all came to us in the German language. So they were all German as, as far as I remember. It was only in school that I got sort of folk tales in, in Irish. You know? one, one of the f- great things about, about our house was that there was almost always a smell of baking. That was the centre of the house, of course. And at the back of the kitchen, there was a small little extension where a a lot of the kind of daily activities hung, uh, you know, revolved around that kitchen and the breakfast room. The garden was was used quite a bit. I have to think of my parents as sort of in their 30s still, when I was a child, extremely energetic and hoping to use the garden as a a sort of a, you know, in an industrial way almost. You know, they... They went out and sort of my father dug the garden and planted lots of vegetables. So it was, it was almost like a small market garden he had. He uh, had all kinds of fruit trees planted. Like in the summer, there were constantly flowers on the table from the garden. So he was extremely energetic and productive in that sense. Even though we were not allowed, you know, we had we had the German language and the Irish language at home. It was impossible to avoid picking up English. Uh, there were all these people on the street. We occasionally met other children or were invited over, even though they were very rarely invited back to our house because English was just not allowed in the house. You know, we, we had this kind of phrases in our head all the time. My brother had this phrase, walk on the wall, because that's what we did at the seafront all the time. We walked on these little walls all the way down to Sandy Cove to go swimming or whatever, and then was walking on the wall all the way back again. And one day in the garden, he had made himself a little wall with concrete blocks. He was walking on it and saying this phrase, and I think my father became suddenly very angry. He told him to stop, but Frank didn't, so he hit him, and Frank fell off the wall and broke his nose. And inside, my mother discovered all of this, and she was really horrified, and decided that she wanted to leave and go back to Germany. She couldn't understand how a man could be so brutal... And to say that he was sorry that this happened, but that the rules still had to be obeyed. She must have felt terribly isolated and lonely in, the, in, in, in those kind of moments. He promises to put on German music and everything is papered over for the moment again. As a child, we don't, you don't kind of come to any conclusion there. You don't say that this is wrong what your father has done. All you say to yourself is that walk on the wall is not a phrase that I can use in the house. I have to be very careful in future not to use anything, any English words. These are very formative things then. When you learn those things at, at five, they tend to stay with you. There was, there was a lane at the back of the house then that, that connected onto the, the street. Quite a fearful place to go because we then came in contact, first of all, with the outside world, other children. And there was a lot, lots of stone throwing, lots of gangs. We were terrified of that place. You know. Sieg heil, they shout. Achtung, schnell, schnell, donnerum blitzen. I know they're going to put us on trial. 
They have written things on the walls, at the side of the shop and in the laneways. They're going to get us one of these days and ask questions that we won't be able to answer. I see them looking at us, waiting for the day when we're alone and there's nobody around. I know they're going to execute me because they call my older brother Hitler and I get the name of an SS man who was found in Argentina and brought back to be put on trial for all the people he killed. I am Eichmann, I said to my mother one day. But that's impossible, she said. She kneeled down to look into my eyes. She took my hands and weighed them to see how heavy they were. Then she waited for a while, searching for what she wanted to say next. You know the dog that barks at the waves, she said. You know the dog that belongs to nobody and barks at the waves all day until he's hoarse and has no voice anymore. He doesn't know any better. So then we try to be Irish. So we run down to the seafront as Irish as possible to make sure nobody can see us. We stand at the railings and look at the waves crashing against the rocks and the white spray going up into the air. We're Irish and we say Jesus every time the wave curls in and hits the rocks with a big thump. Big bully waves, I shouted, because they could never catch us and they knew it. The dog was there barking and barking and we were there holding back the waves because we didn't know any better. It's, it's almost as like, you know, the way that we lived, you know, forced us to live in the imagination. It comes in a way from my mother too because she was in exile or in living in a foreign country and she was constantly thinking about this country where she came from and telling us about it. A fantasy country almost. She had a number of possessions. One of them was uh, a large oak trunk that was part of her heirloom. Very, one of the very few pieces that she managed to salvage from that time. That stood in the hallway in our house for years, all, all the time. It somehow just came to me after my mother died as well, so I'm very, you know, really delighted to have it. Nowadays, I keep her diaries in, in the oak trunk and all of the things that she left are mostly, mostly kept in there. They were written to us so that we could go back over our lives. Every time there was an incident, she, she would put it into the diaries. She would put in photographs of us, you know, locks of hair, as a lot of other people would have done. But then she also put in some of the major events that, that happened when we were growing up. Things like the war in the, over the Suez, you know, the invasion of Hungary, and then the, you know, the triumph of Ronald Delaney and the kind of Melbourne Olympics. All of those bits were cut out of the paper and stuck into these diaries as well. She was aware of the irony that, you know, the ironic situation that we were in as, as sort of Irish-German children. She, she kind of understood the humour of a lot of the situations, as well as, in a way, how difficult it was. My, my first day at school, for example, I went in and I slapped the school teacher in the face when Danny Kine, a very sort of well-known teacher at Scholar Pond, the all-Irish school that we went to, uh, she had a system where, if you were bold, she would make you stand on the table and say Tom Buchelshaw Donna and she would repeat the word Donna 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 and it was kind of a humiliation in front of all the other children and if you were good she would give you I remember a Yorkshire toffee she would allow you to open the tin and take a Yorkshire toffee out I must have done something bold because she she then put me on the table and said I was Donna and my immediate reaction was to slap her in the face and she was a very well-known teacher. She said she'd never been slapped by a boy 
uh, before in her life. But the strange thing about it was that my, when my mother arrived to pick me up, I could see instantly that she was proud of me. And, well, she kind of kneeled down and looked into my eyes and afterwards went out and spoke to the other mothers and said, guess what, he slapped the school teacher in the face. And their reaction was one of horror, that, you know, there was going to be a really difficult child here. But my mother reacted in the opposite way altogether. She was, she said, oh, no, no, he's, he's going to be like his uncle, Uncle Gert, the Lord Mayor in, in her town. He was a very conscientious man who uh, fought against the Nazis and wouldn't carry out any of their decrees. Uh, so much so that, you know, they eventually had to oust him under a law that they brought in that you could not be a public servant in Germany without being a member of the party. Even then he'd refused to become a member of the Nazi party. And she had a huge admiration for him. Uh, and I suppose she thought here her, her own son was going to repeat that or to be rebellious in a way that German people were were not. And I suppose she also didn't understand that that in Ireland we had a country full of rebels, you know, that everybody was possibly saying in Ireland that, that you know, we had enough of that kind of eagerness to slap people in the face or any kind of resistance to authority. So as a child I was constantly exposed to that kind of irony where I was playing the Irish rules and not adhering to the German rules or vice versa. I was never sure which rules I should be playing playing by. I mean there were other bizarre things in Scholar Con I remember where there was this, there was this song at school that everybody sang called Orosha the Wahawale about the British going home. It was it was saying to the British, you know, we wish you a good trip home. Uh, it was this kind of slightly triumph, triumphant Irish nationalist song that after the British gone they kept singing in all the schools. And it was all, it was part of this kind of reclaiming of the republic. You know. So you could hear this in school all the time. You know, the song gave you a good feeling in your stomach. It was a strange kind of education where, you know, every teacher talked about sort of mythologies that the Irish won in the end. Uh, one, of, one of the teachers had this way of talking about the Irish as though they had lost a hurling match. They kept losing until the very last minute and then they won. The stories and the kind of ways of telling Irish history were very sad. Like, I mean, they were, the Irish were always looked upon as the kind of saddest people in the world because of their history. And then also there was this great triumph with 1916 where they eventually liberated themselves. It was very much part of the way that history was told in a very sort of emotional uh, way, almost like a sort of a hurling match. On the other hand, then my, my, my mother had all of those stories from Germany, so we, had, uh, we balanced them out. Das war doch nichts, das war doch nichts, das war doch 
das muss ein schlechter Müller sein, die ihm niemals viel das Wandern ein. Das Wandern, das Wandern, das Wandern, das Wandern. My father is a very formidable influence on me as well. I suppose his energy for a start. I mean, he was this slightly erratic entrepreneur who wanted to start up a business. Uh, and when, he, when all his enterprises failed, he, he tried to bring in crucifixes from Oberammergau. He tried to bring in, you know, party wear from, from Germany. He tried to kind of set up a sweet factory, lots of things. Then, then he started woodwork and various other things. And, you know, eventually then came, when all of these things failed, he then went back to this bizarre enterprise of just changing the names of the streets into the Irish language. It was the only, only enterprise that he was really successful in. Divisi Terrace, Albert Road, Silchester Road, Neptune Terrace, Narano Road, Sorrento Road, he had them all changed into Irish, one by one. Royal Terrace became Oscar Riga because money and profit were not everything, he said. On Sundays, we walked everywhere to make sure that we covered them all. Oh, wandern, wandern, meine Lust, oh, told us about the great Irish poets and scholars who once lived in Munster, where he came from, among them his own grandfather, who was known as Taigo Donovan Deal. When the names of people and places all over Ireland were changed into English, all the poets and Irish speakers lost their way and suddenly found themselves in a foreign land. He told us how they all went blind overnight, stumbling around in the dark with no language, and now it was time to change the names back to Irish so that the people knew where they were going again. My father never encouraged any questions about West Cork, and I think there were lots of reasons for this. I don't think it was associated with great memories for him, because he was derided for having a limp, and he was also derided for having a father who was in the, in the British Navy. I think he was a person who wanted to get out of West Cork very quickly and never look back. He said on various occasions that instead of going to West Cork, he would show us the future. And for him, the future was Connemara. So he would take us down there for holidays. And that is probably an irony in itself, that he referred to the Gaeltacht, the Irish language, as the future, at a time when everybody else in Ireland probably saw it as the past, very much receding into the past, even faster by the day. Dine an Royal Herfade wissen nicht. 
There were a lot of, say, cultural things that reminded me that I was very different. Things I kind of only gradually became aware of. Stories like Popeye and when television began to come in to Ireland, there was Huckleberry Finn and Yogi Bear. And so, like, the children were full of all of these phrases and I even sort of repeated some of them without having seen the programmes themselves. I thought they were fantastic phrases. I, I do remember one particular ad that was going around, which was, you know, don't forget your fruit comes, chum, or mum, or whatever. So I brought these phrases home, and quite naturally, they kind of stuck to the roof of your head, you know, the same way as pop songs do. And I just said them like a mantra all the time, uh, and of course got into a lot of trouble with my father over those. Or even brand names were 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 a problem, and it, I think I think looking back on it, I think the, I think it was the brand names that particularly caused him to become angry because he felt like that the Irish language was even more under siege commercially, uh, and that the language had no chance at all. I mean, I do remember being on buses with him, and occasionally you would see a shop front with the name written in Irish, O'Kinney or O'Mole a butcher shop or something like that. And I can remember the kind of delight that was in his eyes. You could see it. As if at last the Irish language is going to be able to compete on its own. And, uh, of course, that came at a time when, when all of this pop music and all of the television influences were coming into Ireland. It was almost like sort of holding back the waves. I mean, people, people ask me how long this memoir took to write, and I... I I give them varying estimates of between five years and 50 years. It, it took some time before I could discover the voice. As I put it in the book, I felt as a child that I had been born with a stone in my hand. And it was only later on as an adult that I could sort of put that stone aside and really become myself.
I, I feel this is very much you know a collective story that the whole family are part of. You know, they all lived through it. I mean, I feel at times that I'm just the person who wrote it down. Like that, I, I even got the kind of trademark phrases from my father and the, you know the trademark saving rescuing phrases from my mother and so the whole tone of the book was almost written in the way that we lived our lives as children but if I really want to think sometimes of the origins of the story I must remember how my brother about five years after my father died he went upstairs to the wardrobe and took out the photograph of my grandfather the sailor and hung it up on the wall and I think he really is the originator of the story in that act where he brought out his grandfather. And so that, in a way, led to me writing the book also. My father knows he's lost the language war because he's behaving more like other fathers now. He bought a television set and started watching programmes in English like the detective who pretends he knows nothing. He got a car too and buys petrol in English and even eats biscuits that are not made by my mother. Sometimes he looks like he's tired of fighting and tired of making sacrifices all his life and he's sad because he might as well not have bothered. There's no point in keeping the waves back anymore. He says he's made mistakes. It's not easy to say you lost, but he came to me one day and shook hands and said he wished he could start all over again because he would make different mistakes this time. Then one day, British soldiers shot people dead on the streets of Derry. They had lost the language war too and shot straight into a crowd of people marching for civil rights. He said he never held a gun in his hand and there was no point in me doing it either. He said it was better to use the typewriter because if you make mistakes, you can still correct them without killing anyone. I knew he wanted to make up for all the mistakes he made. My father has one soft foot and one hard foot, one good ear and one bad ear, and we have one Irish foot and one German foot and a right arm in English. We are the Brack children, Brack homemade Irish bread with German raisins. We are the Brack people and we don't just have one briefcase. We don't just have one language and one history. We sleep in German and we dream in Irish. We laugh in Irish and we cry in German. We are silent in German and we speak in English. We are the speckled people.
If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.